If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's where we're going to start this morning as it will lay the context for the two Psalms which were written based upon this single event. We continue our summer in the Psalms today. And this year we've decided to look at the Psalms of the life of David, particularly those Psalms in which in the superscription, those little titles beginning at the top of the Psalms, tell us exactly what was going on when David wrote that particular inspired Psalm. There are 13 of them in total that we're going to be looking at this summer. And remarkably today, we get two for the price of one. One event in David's life would lead him to writing two very powerful psalms. Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. In one of the worst moments of fear in David's life, God produced in his heart two of the most powerful fear and anxiety-killing psalms in all of God's inspired hymn book. It's something about suffering that produces great songs. So don't waste your suffering. Fear is a reality that has touched every soul in this world. And it can be a devastating plague. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said it best, quote, Fear defeats more people than any other thing in the world. End quote. So I want to ask you today, what fears and anxieties are currently plaguing your life? Is it fear of the future? Your future? Your children's future? Grandchildren's future? Is it fear for your own walk of faith? Don't taste God as sweet as you once did. Maybe you feel your assurance slipping away. Are you in personal conflict? Maybe conflict at home. Maybe fear and anxiety is crushing you because you know that you need to have a hard conversation and you are terrified to do it. Are you at a crossroad in your life right now where it doesn't seem like there is any clarity at all of what to do moving forward? Or maybe it's much deeper. Maybe the fear is self-inflicted. Maybe you are so absolutely enslaved by a habitual sin And you find yourself right now where you're sitting and living in constant shame with the dreadful fear that this is going to find me out. And it's going to destroy a lot of people when it gets found out. Are you living with that today? What what fear is besetting your soul? What anxiety 
lays heavy on your heart this morning? What burdens weigh upon your mind? How have these things altered your personality? How have they affected your worship of God? Your relationship with Him? Your relationship with others? I want you to know, dear friend, God has not left us without a much-needed antidote to help us overcome that fear and anxiety that now plagues your life. I believe that the two Psalms that we will look at today provide exactly the remedy needed to wage war on the fears and anxieties that cause us to often think the most foolish of thoughts and to act the most foolish of ways. Because that's what fear does. Fear calls us to act in foolish ways. And it causes us to think foolish thoughts. The main point that we will see from our text this morning is this. The greatest prescription for eradicating fear is to fix our heart upon the immense glory and goodness of God and to trust completely that He will deliver every person who takes refuge in Him alone. This is the prescription for eradicating the fear and anxiety that besets your soul this morning. I think you'll see it from the text clearly. But before we get to those power-filled psalms, we need to see the context. What drove David to writing these two fear and anxiety-killing psalms? We need to know the context. So the first thing I want you to see this morning in 1 Samuel is David's predicament in Gath. His predicament in Gath. We, We saw this briefly last week as we were laying out the life of David, what's going on. David is being being assailed, assaulted. He's running from his life from Saul. He has run to Nob there where the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle currently is, the city of priests. There he goes to Ahimelech to receive both provision and protection from the house of the Lord. He receives the showbread, the, the bread of presence there to be sustained in his mission and... He, seeing Doag, the Edomite, the spy of Saul, begins to fear and realizes he doesn't have anything to protect himself with. So he asks Ahimelech, the high priest there, do you have anything? Is there any weapon here that I can take? And just so happens that the one weapon in the entire city of Nob is the sword of Goliath. The very sword that David used to cut off Goliath's head after he killed him. And as you can imagine, David said, oh, that will be perfect. I will take that sword. But fascinatingly, right, after receiving this sword, knowing that Doeg the Edomite is going to go tell Saul where he is, David seeks to flee to the one place he doesn't think Saul will go to look or will want to look. He flees to Gath. So let's look at that here. 1 Samuel 21 Verse 10 through 15, and look at this incredible predicament. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? 
Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So David flees to Gath. And he does so thinking that he's going to just like kind of fly under the radar there. That he's going to go there, that he's going to get protection from the king there. So he goes there, he's, he's kind of seeking asylum, hoping that uh, for somehow he's going to slip underneath the radar. But the moment he comes into Akish's court, the servants of Akish immediately know who this is. This is David, the king of the land. Think of that. That's the Philistines saying that. The servants of Achish, men of Philistia, are declaring that David is the true king of the land. Now, what's important about that little thing there is that this is actually an indictment on Saul. Saul, who is an Israelite. is attacking and assailing the true anointed king while a pagan nations receive the true king. This is another one of those times where David and his life becomes a very clear foreshadow or type of his greater son and Lord, Jesus Christ. Of how Israel is rejecting and assailing its true anointed king while the nations receive him for who he is. This is setting the stage of a picture that will continue to repeat and is met completely in the fulfillment of Christ himself. So in many ways, this is a first off a bit of an indictment to Saul that even Philistia knows that David is the true king. But this unsettles David because David somehow thought he was going to fly under the radar. He somehow was shocked when he walked into the court of Achish and everyone there not only knows of him, but they know the songs that are sung about him of how he kills tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of who? Philistines! So you can imagine... He's like, oh no. They know who I am. This is amazing though. And this is very important. David somehow seemed to forget 
and didn't realize maybe that when God makes you his own, when God delivers you, when God touches your life and sets you apart for himself, it can't go unnoticed. The world will know when God has set you apart for himself. When God has touched your life. And so my friends, just a quick word of, of, of exhortation. Be very weary if you claim to belong to God and no one's noticed the effects. The Lord was making it clear and clearer to David, you're my king. Even the pagans know it. David, you can't run from this calling. You can't outrun my will for you. My friends, nothing can thwart God's will for your life. And when you try to act like anything else other than what he has called you to by his word, you'll only end up acting like a fool. And that's what we see with David. Notice, the Lord never told David to flee to Gath. There's not, at no point is David like, did David call upon the Lord and say, where should I go? Where would you have me go, Lord? Where would your servant be best fit for you? David is just running for his life. Everything he is doing is out of an act of fear. Fear is the driving force of David's life right now. So he goes to literally the place of his enemies. He goes to Gath. He's trying to get away from Saul as fast as he can. And so he literally runs to the place whose army he defeated. And he goes there wearing the sword of Goliath. And he thinks he's not going to be noticed. But this is precisely what fear and anxiety does to us. It causes us to act compulsively, dangerously, and foolishly. Without even thinking. You think you're going to go unnoticed? You killed their giant. You killed their warlord. You're wearing his sword. You don't think they're going to know who you are? It's amazing what fear causes us to do. And the fools it causes us to become. Akish recognizes who this is. He knows this is David. Psalm 56, when we get to it, we actually see in the title that he has his guard lay hands on David. They seize him. Now, why is Akish doing that? Akish is doing this because of his own fear. This dude's killed Goliath. I'm not taking any chances. And notice... David killed Goliath from a distance. I'm not giving him any space to shoot me in the head with some stone. So Akish is doing his own self-preservation thing. So he has his guard come and just put hands on David. Basically like, hey dude, i got to watch myself. I'm not sure what you're here for. I don't know if you're trying to come and assassinate me. David seeing this, he sees and realizes they know who I am. They're coming to lay arms on me. Immediately, the fear that he already has for what's going on with Saul is now multiplied. It's done for. They're going to kill me. This is it. 
And in this moment where David is filled with utter fear, we see this very hard reality for us to swallow sometimes. That even the best of men are but men at best. David succumbs to this fear in a very foolish way, literally. David, despairing because of the fear of man, begins to act like he's a maniac. He just literally acts like he goes into this crazed fit. He changes his behavior. I love that. He changes his behavior, literally distorts his body, begins to convulse in their hands. They let him go like, what the heck's going on here? He runs over to the gates and the door and starts clawing it. The one who pinned the Psalter now scribbling on the gates as a fool. Scribbling on the gate, scratching it with his fingers. You can imagine nails ripping off, fingers going to blood as he is scratching at it. He begins to, to, as if he's foaming from the mouth, and spittle is coming down his face and his beard. And Akish is convinced, this can't be David. The man who killed Goliath would never act like that. The man who Yahweh the Lord of hosts was behind, would never act like this. This can't be Him. And I don't have any more room for madmen. I got enough of them in my house. So He can go. Get this crazy guy out of here. And David gets away from Gath because he acted like a fool. Literally. Now you may think, Bravo, David. Bravo. What ingenuity. What what creativity. Give the man an award. What acting skills. But I want you to know it was none of that. This was a man who made himself out to be a fool because he was afraid of what other men would do to him. In this moment of fear, fear got the best of him. And fear often causes us to create our own path in order to find a way out. And that path is often the path of least resistance. It is the path that promotes self-preservation rather than spiritual perseverance. It is a path that circumvents God and what He's called us to do. Fear often causes us to walk the path that circumvents God's will for your life. But my friends, David would not be the only strong man of God who would change his behavior and act this way because of the fear of man. Maybe you remember the story of Peter. On the night of Jesus' arrest, this strong, compulsive man who looked to the Lord in the eye and said, I'll never deny you. I'll die before I deny you. And we know how that went. Matthew chapter 26, verse 73 through 74. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I 
do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. This was the third time Peter denied the Lord. And each time, he changes his behavior for the worst. To where at the end, he's literally invoking an imprecatory, a curse on himself. To say, strike me down if I know who this is. Oh, how the fear of man leads us to the most foolish of behavior. But what's fascinating about this is both men in those situations, David and Peter, both David and Peter had put themselves in places they were never called to be. And I want you to know, my friends, when you put yourself in precarious places, don't be shocked when you fall vulnerable, when you fall prey to the fear of men. The reason why there are so many people who call themselves Christians, especially church leaders, who have fallen to the fear of men is because they are in places they were never called to be. But if we're honest, we've all been there. We've all been in places where the fear of man got the best of us. We chose to keep our mouths shut instead of sharing the gospel. When we refused to stop and pray for someone we felt called to. When we acted like somebody we're not because we didn't want to be called out for our faith in Christ. Where we turned an eye to evil rather than standing forth for justice. And unfortunately today we see countless local churches across the western world that were once bastions of faithfulness that have made themselves fools because of the fear of man. And they'll be seen everywhere, especially this month. Fear told David that if you don't act with your own means and your own strength, if you don't abandon your principle and act like a fool, you're going to die. That's what fear told him. If you don't just take matters into your own hands, you're done for. Rudyard Kipling put it this way, quote, Of all the liars in the world, our fears and anxieties are the worst of them. In this very brief moment, fear calls David to forget who he was, but more importantly, who his God was. The very God who had already delivered him from the greatest of enemies. Who do you have to fear, David? When you have the promises and protection of God on your side. David had no need to fear Achish. Because little did David know, God had actually already went before him and worked on Achish's heart. God was actually going to provide a place of safety for David in Gath, the very place of his enemies. But because of his fear and anxiety, in this moment, David would miss it. Because he let fear win, as opposed to his faith. 
Because we're going to see in a few chapters from here, 1 Samuel 27, that this won't be the last time David goes to Gath. Look at what happens in 1 Samuel 27, verse 1 through 4. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish the son of Moak, or Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. So Solomon didn't get it from anybody, that's for sure. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So notice, this is fascinating. In just a short period of time, the one who acted like a madman to escape Philistia to escape Gath, is now going right back there to the one he was afraid of just a few short, just a short period earlier. To now go and seek refuge to the place where he was once running from to act like a fool. What has happened? What's going on here? We see in 1 Samuel 27 that God had provided a place of safety for David in the presence of his enemies. Now you see where Psalm 23 is flowing out of. David saw that over and over again. In the presence of my enemies, he prepares a table before me. Right? But this begs the question, doesn't it? What the heck happened to David? What changed from 1 Samuel 21 to 1 Samuel 27 that goes from let me act like a madman because I'm afraid of this place to let me go to a quiche because he's going to give me refuge? What happened? And the answer is that God in His sovereignty used this moment of fear in David's life to cause David to turn to Him and say, Never again will I not trust you when fear arises. Never again will I let that fear cause me to forsake my trust in you. Never again will I do what my son will one day write in the Proverbs. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Solomon would not learn that just from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but from the life of his father. David in his first visit to Gath had been snared by the fear of men. But in the midst of his terror, the faith in that man after God's own heart broke through once again. And the first thing he did after that failure of fear in Gath was to write the words that we have in Psalm 56. So turn with me to Psalm 56. In Psalm 56, we have David's prayer of trust. David's prayer of trust. We'll read the first seven verses to begin with here of this. But notice here the superscription to the choir master according to the dove on far off terebinths or depending on the translation you have, the dove on distant oaks. A victim of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. I love that. 
according to the dove of far off terebinth. Terebinth are a terebinth tree that are in what's fascinating, they are in like Macedonia and Greek, Greece. So David is talking about stuff that is way far away. Trees that are way far away from this. And, and I, what I love about this superscription and the kind of musical tone, because what that, what that was meant to do was to set the, the manner in which the music was to be to play. So if anybody today is like, well, music's used to manipulate man. Exactly. Exactly. David knew that. The Psalms have mictums. And, 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 and the music is meant to portray a way that is to move the affections of the reader to a certain way. God gave us music to move our hearts to a certain way. And, and here, the superscription, as a dove on distant oaks or far off terebums. What I think that is, is I think of a dove, small and vulnerable. But the picture is here of one that has been carried away from trouble and finds refuge on an unshakable oak. That is God. And that's who David is in this psalm. I am the small and vulnerable dove who is totally prey to the birds of prey of the air. But I have found refuge on distant oaks, on the strength of the God who carries me away from trouble. That's the heart of this psalm. Already from the superscription. Verse 1 through 7. Be gracious to me, O God. For man tramples on me all day long and attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their evil thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples. Oh God, we'll stop there for now. David starts with a plea. Be gracious to me, oh God. Be gracious to me. And then in the next basically six verses, he provides a lament as to what's going on. He pours his heart out to God of the things that are beset his soul of what's created the fear in him. But why start out with be gracious to me, O God? It's because this lament is not just a lament, it's a confession. David is providing the lament of the fear that caused him to act so foolishly. Be gracious to me, O God. In spite of my my foolishness, in spite of having been given over to fear the way that I just was. Be gracious to me, O God. My enemies are all around me. I love how vulnerable the Scriptures are regarding the life of faith. And the truth of the matter of how Often our circumstances do get the best of us. David was not immune to that. Peter was not immune to that. Of having their circumstances get the best of them in a moment of their life. So if that's been you the last week, 
where your circumstances have gotten the best of you. If that's been you the last month, maybe that's been you your whole life. Then I want you to hear these words today from David. The issues have piled up for David. They trample and oppress him. The language is there. Isn't it amazing how often fears multiply? When you have one fear, it just seems like more get added. How concerns seem to compound. How anxieties seem to add. Or as we often say it, when it rains, it seems to pour. Like wolves, fears and anxieties and invasive thoughts hunt us in packs. They just keep coming. But when those fears rise in our heart, David shows us what our prayers must be. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I want you to notice something very remarkable about the nature of David's prayer. David's prayer is primarily a preaching to his own soul. You know, so often we think of prayer as merely a means of inquiring or asking of God to bring something to pass. And there's nothing wrong with asking God to bring His will to pass to, to, bring, to pray for good things you have not because you ask not, right? It is, it is good and it is right to pray for things and to, for things to happen as long as they are in line with God's will. But so often we miss the fact that the primary purpose of prayer is to not manipulate God's will. It is to align our will with Him. Prayer is the time where we get our soul in line with God. It is a preaching to our own heart. I won't be afraid anymore. I won't be given to this. I will stop sinning and put my heart and my faith and my hope in you, God. You've got to preach to your own heart. That's what David does when he shows us that's the heart of prayer. I will do this for you, God. Not my will, but thine be done. The greater David shows us what that is. To preach to our own soul the essence of what God's will is for us. So David says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Notice, David does not say, I never struggle with fear. Because that would make him a liar. we just seen that. Rather, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In other words, fear strikes and the battle begins. And that's true for all of us. Fear strikes and the battle begins. So hear me. Please hear me here. The Bible never assumes or states that true believers will have no anxieties or fear. That is a lie from hell if you ever hear otherwise. That the presence of fear simply means you don't have faith. That's not true. It's not true. David shows us here in Psalm 56 with absolute clarity that faith and fear 
can coexist in the heart of a believer. I want you to know, my friends, so much of the life of faith is a life of constant collision between the realities of faith and fear. So much of the life of faith is that cosmic collision of fear and faith. We so often find ourselves dwelling in the midst of a spiritual twilight where light and darkness are both present. Sometimes it's hard to tell which seems to predominate. The flesh deeply struggling to believe. But the born again heart saying, you're going to believe. You're going to hold on. You see this tension best. And that man who was praying for Jesus to heal his son with an unclean spirit. Mark chapter 9, verse 21 through 24. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Can't imagine the kind of fear and helplessness that would cause for my child to see them going through that and not be able to do anything. Some of you know that, what that's like to see your child suffering and not be able to do anything to help. Cast him, into, cast him into the fire and the water. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the collision of faith and fear. That's the collision of desperation and determination in God. I believe, help me where my unbelief is. Help where I don't have faith. Help where fear has got the best of me. Is that your cry this morning to Jesus? If so, then know He will conquer your areas of unbelief. He will. He has compassion if you but seek Him for help. When anxiety strikes and blurs out our vision of God's glory and goodness and the greatness of the future that He plans for His people, this does not mean that you're faithless or that you won't make it to heaven. It means your faith is being attacked. That's what it means. It's the enemy throwing mud on your window hoping you don't finish the race. But no one tries to throw enemy on an opponent who's not even on the same track. So if you're being blocked out, if you feel like fear is attacking your faith, that's a sign that you're on the right path. But cling to the one who put you on it. Cling to Him who will guide you and give you light to see in the midst of the darkness. My friends, hear me today. When you struggle with fear and anxiety, do not let that undermine your assurance of salvation. The assurance of your salvation is not based upon the presence of fear and anxiety in your life. The assurance of your salvation is based upon where do you turn when they arise? 
Where do you go when fear arises? What do you look to for hope when fear arises? Where do you go to find light to pierce the darkness? That's where the assurance of your salvation is going to be found. And it's got to be God alone. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, Lord. That's what we must preach to our soul. And if you do that, you can know with certainty God will help you because He is mindful of what you go through. We see this very clearly in verses 8-13, through 13, the rest of the psalm. You've kept count of my tossings. Hear these words. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the days when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thanks offer, thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You want words to preach to your heart to eradicate fear? There you go. Psalm 56, verse 8 through 13. Preach that to your soul when fear and anxiety arises, and you'll watch it melt away in light of who God is for you. Notice all the things that David says here about why he can put his trust in God when he's afraid. Notice God sees, You've kept count of my tossings, you've put my tears in a bottle. The Hebrew there is literally in a wineskin. He's put your tears in a wineskin and giving you a new one with new covenant mercy in Christ. Think about that. You, are they not in your book? God sees, my friends. There is nothing in your life that He doesn't see. There is nothing that you are going through right now in this present hour He is not absolutely mindful of in every way possible far greater than even you are. He sees. But not only does he see, he hears. Notice, the enemies will turn back in the day when I call. God hears you. He hears your cries. He hears those. He not only sees those tears, he hears them. He numbers them. He hears the outpouring of your soul. Which is why you have no need to fake and live in this facade of a prayer life where you preach and where you pray in these and vows as if you're impressing God. He knows everything your heart says. So it is far better to have a prayer with heart and no words than words with no heart. Because God sees and He hears. But not only does He see and He hears, God cares. Notice what He says. This I know, that God is for me. Can you say that today? Do you know 10,000% God is for you? There's only one way to know that. Are you in Christ? If you are in Christ by faith today, you can sing with utter assurance and acclamation, My God is for me. As Paul says in Romans 8.31, 
If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for me, what do you have to be afraid of men for? Afraid of dust. Rather than the one who formed and fashioned it by his own hand. You're afraid of dust. Think about that. And yet we're all there. It's one of the most subtle areas we all slip into. The fear of men. Because we lose sight of that truth. God is for me. And if God's on your side, you're always in the majority. Please hear that. If God is on your side, you have the majority. Because if all the cosmos are against you, you have everything when God is on your side. So God hears, He sees, He cares. But most importantly, He acts. Notice, you delivered me from, you delivered my soul from death. You kept my feet from falling that I might walk before God in the light of life. You acted because you saw and you heard and you cared. You delivered me in spite of my foolishness, in spite of my fear. You acted because you are for me. My friend, beware any notion of an impersonal God that is often championed today by hyper-scholastics whose God is more derived from the philosophy of the Greeks than the revelation of Scripture. Yes, God is impassable, but He's not impersonal. God really cares. And He really sees and He really loves and He really is gracious and merciful and good. Those are not just abstract concepts concepts that we can kind of like Him more. He really is those things. He really acts towards us in amidst love and care and goodness and mercy and grace and compassion. So you run away from anything that teaches you an impersonal God. Because that is not the God of the Bible. And there's no greater example of that than what we find in Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder, does God see? Does He hear? Does He care? Does He act? And I say to you, look to Christ and Him crucified. And you will see all you ever need to know about the fact God is for you. He is for you. You will see a God who loves you with an unbreakable, everlasting love. And will uphold you for all eternity who has taken you from darkness and placed you into the light of life. And so when fear arises, you can say with absolute certainty, I'll put my trust in him. David had been delivered and restored and having his fear conquered, having this prayer of trust fully answered. This now moves to a praise of deliverance. This prayer of trust to a praise of deliverance. So he immediately goes into writing another song. And we get that song in Psalm 34. So briefly, quickly, if you turn with me to, to Psalm 34, we see David's praise 
of deliverance. Here the superscription of David when he changed his behavior before Ahimelech, Abimelech. Now some have seen that and said, oh, see, this is one of those errors in the Bible because Achish was the king of Gath. This is just one of those foolish ways that people try to make, try to undermine Scripture, but they don't understand anything. Abimelech was the title of the Philistine kings. Why? Because Abimelech was the first king of Philistia. And we see that in Genesis 26. So just like we talk about like Israel's kings as Davidic kings, that's what they talked about Philistine kings. They were Abimelechite kings. They were from the line of Abimelech. So that's not a contradiction there. It's just the Abimelech's the title of Philistine kings that when he drove them out and he went away. Look at verses 1 through 10. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer one hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What a praise. And that's the only kind of praise you can sing when you know you've been delivered by the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. What David shows us in these first 10 verses of Psalm 34 is that the greatest weapon against a fear-filled mind is a praise-filled heart. The greatest weapon against fear against a fear-filled mind is a praise-filled heart. The Christian faith, my friends, is not one of cold and clinical orthodoxy by which we simply grow our minds and silence our hearts. If that's what it is for you, then you will always be riddled by fear and anxiety. If this is just about cold clinical orthodoxy, when, when things happen in your life, you're not going to have anything to cling to. Because your affections will be distorted towards the world and thus every problem will be magnified beyond what it actually is. So how do we keep that from happening? Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. The word magnify is not like the magnifying of a microscope, which takes things that are very small and makes them appear bigger so that we can see them. That's what the fear of man does. It takes that which is small and makes it seem bigger. That's not what we mean. And David means when he says magnify the Lord. When we magnify the Lord, we magnify like a telescope, not a microscope. A telescope takes things that are too big 
and too far removed from us to be able to see in our natural capacity and brings them right before our eyes so that we can get a small glimpse of the glories of that which is beyond us. A telescope can only reach out and give us, though, what its magnifying capacity will allow. But take heart, my friends. When you were born again in Christ, you received the power to see the triune God, which is impossible in your natural capacity. You received the magnifying power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes that which was once beyond you and now brings the glories of God before your eyes. That you can see and behold Him in all of His intricacies and glories and goodness. And when you see the bigness of God, you will no longer be intimidated by the minuscule problems of this world that so often create the fear and anxiety that causes us to act foolish. Your problems will only be big if your God is small. But when you realize how big your God is, everything else is small. Everything else is manageable. Everything else is okay. Because I know who's for me. And how big He is. The spiritual magnification given to us by the Holy Spirit allows us to not only take in the incomprehensibly big glories of God, but it also allows us to actually look into Him to whose holiness burns brighter than every star in the cosmos combined. You can't take a telescope and go look into the sun. But the Holy Spirit has not only given us magnification, but a spiritual visor that allows us to look into the holiness of the One who burns brighter than every star in the cosmos and to behold it and not be burned up in the midst of it. Think of that. It is no wonder then that David says those who look to Him are radiant. They'll never be put to shame. What does it mean by that? Our face won't be put to shame. It means that we walk through the world looking different. We're not beset by all the problems. We walk with a hope that is in us. We radiate hope. Is that what the church does today? Does it radiate hope or does it radiate fear? That's a question you've got to answer. What are we radiating to Anchorage, Alaska? Hope or fear? Because people aren't going to be interested in asking you for the reason of the fear that's in you. Because everyone else is there with you. We have hope unshakable in Christ. Do we radiate with that to the world? Because if you radiate with the hope of Christ, you'll never be put to shame. You'll never be let down. For it is the brightness and the power of the glories and goodness of God that burns away the fog of fear. 
He is the God who transcends all galaxies, who spoke creation into existence by His very Word and upholds it by the power of His right hand. And yet He is the same God who answers us and delivers us out of all our fears. Think of that. We see the transcendence of God in the Father who is above and beyond all things. And we see the eminence of God in the Holy Spirit who is in us and near us and close to us. It's why we need the, tr- the Trinity. It provides God to be both fully transcendent and absolutely imminent, near and close and within. It allows Him to be sovereign and superior, yet close and personal. And Christ is the bridge that brings both of those realities into its fullest. He hears the cries of us poor men. He saves us out of all of our troubles. And He doesn't just do that by plucking us out of them. God doesn't often act in rescuing us by plucking us out of problems. He delivers us through them. He delivers us through the problems. He delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fire. He saved the disciples through the storm. It's through it. Why? Because... It's through the trials that you're made more like Jesus. That all of the stuff, all of your dependence on the world is pruned away. And your clinging to God is strengthened. So He's not just going to pluck you out of the fire. But He will save you through it. He'll rescue you through it. And it is for your good and His glory. And that is why you can count it all joy when you suffer various trials and afflictions. Because you know it's for your good. He delivers us through them. And greater is He that is in, than He that is in the world. Greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. I love that picture. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. I think of Elijah and his servant open the eyes to see that, that he who is with us is greater than he that is against us. You would be amazed if you had the eyes to see. We don't in this life. The 10 billion ways God protects you in a given day. I don't think you could possibly comprehend the 10 billion ways God is protecting you this very moment. Physically and spiritually. But not only does the Holy Spirit give you the eyes to see the magnificent glories of God and what He's done for you, He gives you the taste buds to be satisfied no matter what bitter circumstances come your way. Where Psalm 56 battles fear with the call to trust, Psalm 34 battles fear with the call to taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. My friends, there is not a circumstance in this world sour enough to rob the soul that has tasted the sweetness of Christ. Like the sweetest milk and honey and the most savory of meats, the goodness of the Lord is beyond all measure. Are you struggling with fear and anxiety today? Then I say set your eyes upon Jesus this morning and go on to the banquet. 
You've tasted the appetizers. I'm serious. Every time you see the sunrise and it moves your heart, you tasted the appetizers of the goodness of God. Every time you feel the warmth of a hug, you've tasted the appetizer. Every time you feel what it is to be loved and you, you taste the, 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 the affinities of this world and you feel the preciousness of life in general, you've tasted the appetizers of the glory of good. So my, my call to you today is to move from the appetizers and go on to the banquet and taste of the Lord Himself. Don't be satisfied with the shadows. Taste the substance and see that He is good. And when you see that He's good, and you tasted it, you won't have an appetite for anything else. And you'll realize there is nothing to fear with this world. Because I have the abundance of everything God is for me in Christ. He is good, my dear friend. There is no part of your life He can't satisfy. There is no area of your life that you can't trust Him with. There is no sin He can't overcome. No prayer He can't answer. No fear He can't remove. No anxiety He can't destroy. No sin He can't cleanse. No life He can't transform. So when fear arises, look to Christ Magnify Him in worship. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then sing with David, I sought the Lord. And He answered me. And He delivered me from all my fears. David had overcome the terrible fear of his predicament with a prayer of trust and a praise of deliverance. But in the last half of Psalm 34, which we'll close with today, David now provides a prescription to himself and to all of us how to keep from falling into the fear of man ever again. I know we're going long, but we got to hear this this morning, guys. David's prescription for us all. We'll just go through this verse by verse. The counsel, or excuse me, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's interesting. We're battling fear with fear. What David teaches us here is the single most important thing that we can use against the fear of man. And that is the fear of the Lord. Remember, David had let his fear of man cause him to act like a fool. Why? Because he had lost the fear of the Lord. He let the fear of the man, a man overcome his fear of the Lord. Now, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, what do we mean? The fear of the Lord means a reverential fear. It is to rightly esteem God for who He is in all of His glory and might and power and holiness. That He is an all-consuming fire. That's who your God is. An all-consuming fire. But as believers, right, when we fear the Lord, Lord, it adds one more aspect of our reverence. The fear of the Lord is a filial fear, a fatherly fear of the Lord. And that fatherly fear of the Lord does four things for us, and we see it here. The first thing it does 
is a fatherly fear keeps us from doing foolish things. Verse 12 through 14. Blessed is our, uh, uh, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The key reason that most of us kept from doing stupid things as a kid was because we were afraid of our dad. But that's what it's supposed to be. A fatherly reverential fear keeps you from doing foolish things. Because it doesn't want the discipline of daddy. It doesn't want his chastisement. The strong hand of our father is what should keep us from doing foolish things. And if you're not doing foolish things, what do you need to fear? It's Romans 13. If you're afraid of authority, don't do bad stuff. Right? Fatherly fear keeps us from doing foolish things. And the reason why so many so-called Christians and churches are doing and embracing foolish things is because they have no fear of the Lord. They fear the chastisement of men over the chastisement of the Lord. And most of them don't even believe in the chastisement of the Lord. They don't even believe in a father who disciplines. Not realizing that if God did not discipline his children, he would be a terrible father. Hebrews chapter 12. So the reverential fear of the Lord keeps us from doing foolish things that would create more fear and anxiety in our lives. Secondly, the fatherly fear of the Lord produces confidence that he'll protect us from evil. Verse 15 through 17. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their trouble. Fatherly fear of the Lord produces confidence. He will protect me from evil. You know, when we were all kids, every one of us, most of us anyways, I'll admit myself in there, often got in this little bit of a scuffle with other kids. My dad can beat up your dad. My dad's stronger than your dad. You know, he can could, he could beat up your dad. It's amazing to me. We laugh about it. But why do kids do that? It's because their sense of protection is seen in their father's power. And I want you to know, my friends, we've all been there. No matter how much you respect and love your dad, there's nothing like that moment where your dad doesn't feel like Superman anymore. And you see them weak for the first time. Where you see their failure come to pass. It's a hard thing as a kid. Guys, I want you to know you're not Superman. I know I've had to learn that myself. But we, didn't, we were never called to be. Rather, our job is to point our children to the Father who is perfect. And who will never slip up. Or never fail. And who will always protect us. Because nothing is greater than Him. Our Father who is in heaven. And when you know who your Father in heaven is, you don't ever got to be afraid. Because He can beat everybody in a fight. 
You have no need to be afraid. Thirdly, the fatherly fear of the Lord is what ensures us of His intimate care for us. Look at verse 18 and 19. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them, Him out of them all. I love this. He is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The fear of the Lord knows that He will stoop down to bind me up in my weakness. And there is no greater display of this than what we see in Jesus. Who drew near to us while we were yet sinners and who died for us. We can be certain that God is for us in Christ. God provided His absolute fatherly care for Jesus, His Son, the eternal Son of God. And if you are in Christ today, you can know that same fatherly care is made towards you today. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He binds up the crushed in spirit. And lastly, the fatherly fear of the Lord is what guarantees our rescue from darkness. Verse 20 through 22. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Hear me today, my friends. There is no place that your father in heaven will not go to rescue you. You may be afraid and in the darkest pit of your life right now, but your Lord is never afraid. There's no, two, there's no place that He's ever afraid to enter. If you let some people into your life, they would run. Because they'd go, this is a mess. The Lord never recurls at the sight of the horror of your life. He enters right into it and He will deliver you from every bit of it. My friends, Jesus bore the wrath of God for you. Because He was not only gracious enough to do it, He was the only one strong and worthy enough to do it. Whatever boogeyman you have under your bed, no matter what sins you have in your closet, your Lord stands unafraid and there's not one of them He will not bring the safety of His light and power into the room of your life and completely remove them all so that you can sleep forever in the security of His protection. Knowing that nothing that ever comes against you physically or spiritually is greater than the one you belong to. So what David is saying here is that when the Lord becomes your greatest fear, it is precisely then that you learn He is also your safest place. When the Lord becomes your greatest fear, you will come to see that He is also your greatest refuge. Because you know in Him, if you're hid in Him, there's nothing that can touch you. So let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Honor Him alone as holy. And He will become a sanctuary to you. A refuge from danger. A haven from wrath. A shelter in any storm. 
And that righteous fear of God will cause you to never tremble again at the fear of men or the anxieties of the world. The snare will be destroyed. The greatest prescription for eradicating fear is to fix our hearts upon the immense glory and goodness of God and to trust completely that He will deliver every person who takes refuge in Him alone. So my friends, when fear arises, let these songs of David be written upon your heart. Trust in the Lord. Taste and see that He is good. Fear Him, all you saints, and watch every fear and anxiety that you have melt away in light of His glory and grace towards each one of you.